Well, if you've ever wanted to know what it's like to be on Survivor, you can just stand up here for a few minutes and get your feel. I told them at the first service that I was afraid that depending on how things went, I might have to get kicked off the island this morning. And now I'm realizing that I should have numbered my nose. (laughs) Well, you know, this morning we continue our march through the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Enough to get a picture of what God can do in, for, and through a people who have a great faith in an infinitely great God. And so if you want to turn with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 11, I have two confessions to make at the outset. Well, number one, it was funny that when I first saw this text this, this, earlier this week, I thought this was going to be a 10-minute sermon. I, for better or worse, it's not. <laughs> so when I was told that the, the first hour, someone came down and they said, why is Sunday school not out yet? The person looked at their watch and they said, Chris. <laughs> so I thought that was good. That's the first confession. Second confession is we're going to be doing what Jeremy's done the last few weeks, flip-flopping back and forth to a lot of Scripture that I think is necessary to get the fullness of God's meaning in this text. So Hebrew chapter 11, starting in verse 28. Speaking of Moses. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now that we have read your word, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word. We pray, God, that you would cause your word to take root in our lives, that you would nourish us with it, that you would feed us with it, that you would bring life through your word, even as you promise. God, that you would set aside the distractions and the to-do lists that so easily pull our minds away and that you would keep us focused and fixed on your revelation. We implore you now to meet us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Recently I had the pleasure of going out in front of the parking lot of where I live and trying to teach my little soon-to-be four-year-old how to ride her bicycle. And uh, so here I am there, she's sporting her pink helmet, you know, on the, the pink bike with little tassels on the side. And here's dad feeling like he's a moron, holding, you know, the, the, the handlebars and walking alongside with her. And, and I sound like a Marine because I'm trying to teach her how to get her coordination right, you know, with her legs. So here I am, left, right, left, right. And she's learning how to pedal and, and it's taken root. And it was a blast. We had a great time. And... For anyone that would have looked, they wouldn't have realized how significant that event was because that event was a long time in the making. Because what seems like a lifetime for a soon-to-be four-year-old, probably like three and a half weeks ago, I'm on the way to a meeting at church one night, and she says to me, Daddy, can, can we go outside? Can you teach me how to ride the bicycle? And I was like, Honey, I've got a meeting. I promise tomorrow. Famous last words, right? I promise tomorrow. Well, and wouldn't you know, I woke up the next day, you know, I was going to get up early before I came in, take her out, and it was raining. Okay, honey, tomorrow we'll go. And you know, the next day it was raining too. And, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. I think finally on day like 13 or 14, it, w- it wasn't raining in the morning when I went to work, but then when I came back, ready to teach her how, it was raining. And so, you know, there was actually a time in Massachusetts where this was normal. And so here I sat out there having a blast with my little girl, enjoying the fr- an event 
the fruit of which was made so much more sweet because it followed upon a promise that had been long delayed but finally was fulfilled. And, and though that concept really fits as kind of a spine with our text here this morning. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. There's kind of three things I want to focus on as we get down into God's Word here this morning. One, we're going to look at, a, at the promise of God that brings about the event that the Hebrews 11 is talking about. A promise made hundreds of years before the event was actually fulfilled. Then we're going to look at the event itself, the first Passover, and this final plague involving this destroying angel that God's talking about. And then finally, we're going to spend some time absorbing the combined weight of the application to those of us who are in Christ and those of us who are not yet within Christ. So if you're a note taker, we've got a promise, an event, and then the application. Promise. It starts out like a fairy tale in some ways, even though it is so much more than that. A long, long time ago in a land far, from, far away from Egypt is a man named Abraham. And Abraham's not trying to become a follower of God. He's not seeking God out. But God, in His grace, reveals Himself to Abraham and establishes a relationship with Abraham. And after God does that, we are told that Abraham responds in faith and that faith is credited to him as righteousness. And then God makes a staggering promise to this venerable patriarch. This patriarch, this old man, who is, we are told that him and his wife, their bodies are as good as dead, is literally what the Scripture says, and they have no children. God says, soon your descendants are going to number as great as the stars in the sky. Staggering promise. God tells him, this land that you've lived much of your life in now as a foreigner, as an alien, as a stranger, your descendants are going to come back here after 400 long years in captivity and they will come out with great wealth and they will possess this land. It will be their inheritance. We are told that God makes a promise, a covenant with Abraham. In the ancient world, covenants were a common way that people would establish a relationship with each other. A covenant kind of served as a, as a guideline to what the relationship would be like, how it would be formed, what the rules and obligations of each party would be. We kind of see you know, how this has trickled down still at least in some sense in weddings. I was at a wedding yesterday and you know, the bride and the groom, they each get up and they say, I pledge to do and so on. They make a pledge, a promise to each other. And, and that's what we see in this concept of a covenant. We see rulers in the ancient world making, establishing treaties. We see people establishing relationships with the rulers. We just see Joe Average Person making a pledge or a promise to each other to guide, govern, and direct their relationship. And the basic style of every covenant would be there would be a, a formal ceremony wherein either verbally or visually or, or perhaps both you would establish what would happen to you if you failed to live up to your end of the covenant, if you broke your promise. And so if you want to turn with me back to Genesis chapter 15, we'll see this first covenant that God makes with Abraham that sets the stage for an event in Exodus which Hebrews 11 is then looking back on.
Genesis chapter 15, starting down in verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and a dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go down to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So again, we have this promise of offspring. We have this promise of, of land that will be given Abraham's descendants after an extended stay in captivity. And I think in and of itself this should strike us as amazing in many ways. Here we have this infinite, sovereign God who doesn't need anyone or anything coming down to a human being like you and I who needs so much by our very nature and saying, I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to establish a relationship with you. We have God seeking Abraham out and saying, I want to be your God. I want you and your descendants to be my people. I want to be in a relationship with you. It's amazing when we really step back and think about it. And this text quickly moves us, I think, from the amazing to the remarkable. We go down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold... A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. You'll recall I said that when you, they firmly and finally established a covenant, there would be a verbal and often a visual display of enacting that covenant and what would happen if either party broke that covenant. And so what was kind of customary was they would take some animals and they would split them in two as Abraham does here in chapter 15. And they'd kind of lay them, you know, like maybe one here and one there going through, you know, maybe several animals. And each party would walk between the two animals as they gave their pledge, their promise. With the implicit idea that if they broke that promise, let them become like those animals that they were walking in between. If they failed to live up to their promised covenantal obligation, let them be split in two. And so it's remarkable to think that in this case, God is making this promise to Abraham to give him descendants. This promise to Abraham, the foreigner, to give him, and his, to give his descendants rather, an inheritance. God doesn't make Abraham walk through. God walked, you know, through this vision, walked proverbially, walks through himself. The, the God of the universe says, if I fail to be faithful and to fulfill the promise I have made to you, let me be torn in two. If I fail to bring to fulfillment my word, let me be slain. 
It's remarkable. You know, there are many promises that God makes to the world generally and to followers of Christ specifically. Promises to keep another flood from happening. Promises to keep, you know, the the earth on its axis. Promises to hear our prayers. To comfort us in our sorrow. Promises to judge sin and injustice. A promise to return. Promise to reward faithfulness and good stewardship. A promise to keep those who are in Him safe and rooted in Him till His glorious return. And we're reminded here that God is not like anyone else we meet. Because quite frankly, I would be terrified if I had to walk between two animals that were cut in half and say, oh yeah, I'll definitely do this. Because I, I, I would be scared that maybe somehow I wouldn't. That I would fail. And yet God, the, the immortal King of the universe, doesn't refrain a step. from He, he tells Abraham, let's do this covenantal ceremony. Because he is not concerned that he will be unable or unwilling to fulfill the promise he made. We worship a faithful God. His, the, the Word tells us His faithfulness stretches to the skies for God to break a promise would be to violate His inviolable nature. It's just not going to happen. And so as we the church gather here together this morning, surely some of us needing to rest in the promises God makes throughout His Word. Some of us perhaps struggling to rest in the promises that God makes in His Word. Let us be reminded as we see here in Abraham's life, that when God makes a promise, no matter far-fetched it may seem, He will keep it. Sometimes that promise may take a long time before it is fulfilled, as in the case of Abraham. And sometimes it will take many twists and turns before it is fulfilled in the case of Abraham. But when God makes a promise, God means business. He's not afraid to put His very life on the line as collateral for the certainty that He will do what He sets out to do. So we have the promise. And we have the event. By faith He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. This verse we hear described Moses' active faith in the last plague that God brings upon the Egyptians prior to the exodus of the Israelites from slavery. And I find it a very odd thing that this is selected on the surface. Why did the writer to the Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, select this act over against any other act that Moses did? I mean, Moses is the great man of faith. He encounters God at the burning bush. This miraculous event, God respo- Moses then responds in faith. Before this last plague, God had done nine plagues, nine judgments through Moses. Other signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And yet here we have this one selected. I hope that makes you ask why. You know, sometimes I think we've got to approach the Word of God like a dog. I know, follow me here. We've got to approach the Word of God like a dog. We see something, we don't get it. We've got to chew on it. We've got to not let up. We've got to keep ask, acting like a child and saying, Why? Why? Why this? Why this? Chewing for the answers until they are revealed through study. Scripture reading can be hard work, though it is profitable and necessary for life. 
So why is this one singled out? I think if we, as we develop the story further and set the scene, we understand why. So we see God, He makes this promise to Abraham like we just talked about. We see how the promise begins to be fulfilled. I mean, in the opening chapters of Exodus, we find out that when the people, we, excuse me, the opening chapters of Exodus, the descendants of Abraham, we see are down in Egypt. His great-grandson Joseph goes down with 70 others. And then we're told when the Exodus actually happens, 600,000 fighting men exit Israel, exit Egypt, adding to that women and children. Most scholars th- then you know, guess the number is probably like 2 million. From this one man, 2 million. So when God said, look up at the stars, he wasn't even just talking about the stars that we see so close to Boston. He was talking about the stars you see when you're on a mountaintop or the stars you see when you're in a desert, the stars you see when you're far away from any kind of light pollution. He was saying, hey, this is the kind of fulfillment of the promises I make. When I make a promise, this is what I do to make it happen. And, and so we see that in the opening chapters of Exodus. We're told that the Egyptians started to get a little frightened as the Israelites increased in numbers so much. And they said, hey, we're worried these people are going to turn on us. We don't want them to rebel against us. We've got to put the screws to these people and put them in their place so they're afraid of us. And we're told they became horrendous slave masters. Quote, and made the Israelites' lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Exodus 1.14 And so we see these people of the promise, part of the promised covenant, part of the covenant promise has been fulfilled, yet not all of it has been fulfilled. And we see them completely subjugated. But then in Exodus chapter 6, if you want to turn to that, in Exodus chapter 6, we see hope begin to be kindled for the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 2. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord... I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession for I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and their cruel bondage. Again, see this concept of God establishing a covenant with the people. That He would be their God, that they would be His people, that He would fulfill every promise that He makes. One commentator writes, the intention of God from eternity to redeem a people for Himself must certainly be affirmed. 
Before the foundations of the world, God set His covenant love on His people. He's promising to redeem them from an oppressor with great acts of judgment that they would know that He is their deliverer and that they would turn to Him. But we are told they are broken in spirit by this long, arduous subjugation they have suffered under and they are weary and don't believe. And, and, and the story we, we see continues. If we kept on reading through, we see Moses, in God's name, confront Pharaoh. And you know, if you've watched the Ten Commandments, you can see it. Let my people go. Let my people go. Pharaoh, the man who claimed himself to be a god, said, no, I'm not going to let your people go. They can stay here. I like them. I'm going to keep them. And, and we see the tension rise. God sends judgment after judgment. Moses again and again confronts Pharaoh. Let my people go. Pharaoh repeatedly says no. His heart becomes like a rock. Stony, hard, unmoving. I'm going to keep them. I will not bend knee to you or your God. Is in effect what he's communicating. Until finally, he is himself broken and relents with the final plague that our Hebrews text relates. And so, so let's go forward now and look at that final event in Exodus chapter 12. We've seen the promise. We've seen the kindling of the promise in the people of Israel who as yet do not believe. And now we see the big show, the event itself happening the event that Hebrews 11 looks back upon. Exodus 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of the year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share with their nearest neighbor, Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take, take them from the sheep or the goats. Skipping down a little bit to verse 10, 10b, or excuse me, 11. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and will strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And so here, on the, on the eve of the big show, on the eve of the deliverance that God promised so long ago before any one of these people even existed that are here today, God says, hey, I don't want you to just eat this meal. I want you to show me that you know that you're ready to go and that you want to go. I, wa- I want your coat on, your sandals ready, your bags packed. Tonight's your last night in Egypt. Hey, I want you 
to, you know, to go and to slaughter this lamb, to sprinkle the blood on the doorposts, and that will be a sign that when I come in my judgment, I will pass over that house. And you will be free from destruction. Moses exerted faith in sprinkling of the blood and keeping the Passover so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch them. I go back to my original question. Why does God choose this act of faith that Moses did and not any of the nine that preceded it? Here's, I think, our answer. You know, between verse 6, chapter 6, which we read, and here in chapter 12, the people of Israel don't even figure into the story directly. We see Moses, we see Pharaoh, we see the judgments, but we don't see this people of Israel who in chapter 6 weren't in the place of really believing. And yet now here, on this eve, an issue is forced, a question, a decisive question is forced upon them that every one of them is going to have to answer, that they have not had to answer up until now. Before this, they, they receive the benefits and they are free from judgment simply by God's providential grace. You know, we're, we're told that God sends darkness on the land of Egypt for three days, but the land of Goshen where the Israelites live, everything is business as usual. God sends hail down upon the livestock and the crops of the Egyptians. And yet, the people of Israel are fine. And yet here now, in this final act of judgment that Hebrews 11 is looking back on, we see that for the people to receive you know, a pass, for them to be passed over, for them to be saved from this final judgment, there is something that they are going to need to do. They are going to need to themselves exert faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of we, what we do not see. They had to be sure now of the promise to be delivered and go to Canaan. Their hope needed to be fixed, set, firm, and sure that that blood that they sprinkled in obedience to the command of God would be powerful enough to save them from that final judgment. Now, they had gotten to sit back and watch the show and all the nine judgments preceding this. Now, for them to finally get to the promised land that they dreamed of going... They needed to trust God. They needed to believe His Word. They needed to respond in faith. Did, would they really have their clothes on, their bags packed in the wee hours of the morning, expectantly, knowing that the day of their deliverance had come? Or would they just sleep in and see what happened? Did they have faith that the God was who He said He was and would do what He said He was going to do. He had made the offer of deliverance. He had made the offer of salvation to this people. But now, for this covenant to be firmly and finally fulfilled, they needed to respond and exercise faith. Faith without action is no faith at all. And now these people needed to answer the question, did they have it? It's the promise. We see here the event. What's the application of God's Word for us today? You know, a number of years ago, I was on a mission trip in West Virginia. 
And we've got multiple groups there all at the same time. And the leader of the trip, I think, trying to kind of do an icebreaker, kind of get to know you thing. They do this, you know, it's great in church circles. Who is your favorite Bible character? You know, um, I think I intentionally change every time just to add confusion. You know, who is your favorite person in the Bible? Who do you most want to emulate? Who would you most like to be like was the way it came off. And not surprisingly, a lot of the, the junior and senior high teens on this trip said, hey, I wish I could be like Moses. Moses is the guy. He's who I want to be like. And, and in some ways that, I think, is the question, that he, part of the question that Hebrews 11 is making us ask. You know, we again and again have this by faith construction. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Moses did that. We get this picture. This is what a person who has a great faith in an infinitely great God can do. And so the question before us is, do I really want that? Do I really want to be like that? Do I really want to be used by God for things like that? It's kind of designed to be a moral influence to spur us on, to give us a picture of what life and faith can look like. And so what does this text teach us about Moses? Moses was the minister of the covenant. You know, God had made this covenant promise that we talked about hundreds and hundreds of years past to Abraham. Now, on the moment of fulfilling that promise, instead of just snapping his fingers and doing it himself, God said, I want you to be my guy. I want you to be the one I use to fulfill my promise, to draw and bring the people out, to lead them into the promised land. You're my guy, Moses. You are going to be the one I work through to fulfill my covenant. And, and, and this speaks to us today. Because we see in this old covenant the shadow of the new in which God has made today. We, you know, Jesus got up at what, the Last Supper, which was itself a Passover meal. And Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood poured out for you. The blood of the new covenant. Again, God's desire to redeem a people for Himself that the infinite great God could be in a relationship with infinitely small human beings. God's desire to establish a covenant. Every time we take communion, as we did last Sunday in this church, we're we're doing a a memorial. We are remembering the blood that was spilled so that we could enjoy the fulfilled promises of the new covenant that Christ has established with His death on the cross at Calvary's tree. In forcing them to sprinkle the Lamb's blood on the doorways, God is reminding the Israelites that there is nothing inherently different between them and the Egyptians. It is not as if they deserve grace and the Israelites don't. It is not as if, well, why does God choose to save the Israelites and not everyone? It is why does God save anyone at all? Why does He redeem anyone at all? They need to make a choice. There is nothing unique, nothing special. There is only His covenant love that He has established. He has made the off- There needs to be blood for that deliverance. He has made the offer of deliverance, but they need to receive that offer. They need to take it. You know, as we sang in the one song, just like it's, the Scripture says in Revelation 5.12, Christ is our Passover Lamb. 
It is proverbially His blood that has been, we must sprinkle on our doorposts of our hearts that we can be saved. We too sit under the just judgment and wrath of the living God. And deliverance is possible, but only through repentance and faith. Will we forsake striving to be the masters of our own destinies? And will we trust in the blood of Christ poured out to make us white as snow? Will we be sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see? Will we trust in the blood of His Son to deliver us from the wrath to come? As surely as those Israelites trusted that first Passover night when they had seen all of the judgments to come that had already come, and they said, this is going to save me. Will we have that same measure of faith that they had? And if we, you are here today and you are trying to figure this whole Christian thing out, that is the, the question the text forces you to respond to. Will I trust in the sprinkled, poured out blood of Christ? You know, there's a peculiar grace we see of God here in this text as well. A peculiar patience and grace. You know, the people of Israel, we see them in chapter 6, right? God shows up and they said, hey, we don't believe. And, you know, I think if we step back, there's no reason God couldn't just said, okay, well, forget it then. You don't want me? Fine. You don't believe me? Fine. And yet that's not what we see. We see God do nine judgments, I think, to give them credible reasons to believe. We see nine judgments to give them a chance, an opportunity. We see God being long-suffering, holding out His hand so these people will cling to it and will trust in Him. And I submit that it is no different for us today. There is a peculiar patience of God. But eventually we have to make a choice. You know, after part of the way I came to Christ was through a investigation asking the simple questions, why is the world the way it is and why are we here? And I submit that it was part of my journey that after looking at all of these different faith systems and worldviews, to me, the Christian one was the most credible one that explained why we're here, why the world is the way it is, why, where are we going, what, what is this problem of evil? Or what is this problem of good, even as I like to say? Only the Christian worldview explains it sufficiently in my view. Only God's promise to have a future for the people of Israel explains why after 3,000 years, they're still here. I mean, like the, like the text Seth read from the book of Esther. You know, if we look at history, there has been many systematic and varied attempts to erase them from memory. And by the grace of God, the people of Israel are still here which to me can only be a testament of His providential plan and will. You know, is there any other um, explanation for the growth of the church than that Christ really was raised from the dead? Because when we go back to that first night, we're reminded here, 12 fishermen had their boss crucified on a tree, and not too long after, they start saying, hey, He was resurrected. And they get all their money taken away. They get martyrdom for that. And they keep saying it, saying it, and saying it. And through that proclamation, the world has been turned upside down for Christ. God has given us credible, 
substantial reasons in His peculiar grace to put our faith in Him. But ultimately, faith must be faith and we must put our faith and trust in Him. We can only wait so long. Eventually, every one of us has to make our choice whether we realize it or not. Will we turn from ourselves towards God and let His sprinkled blood save us? Could today be the day that you imitate Moses by faith and allow the sprinkling blood of Christ to save you? This is an evangelism text. And as surely as it invites those who are not yet in Christ to repent, it beckons those of us who are in Christ to take up the ministerial role as Moses did. Moses fulfilled God's covenant. He was God's minister to fulfill the old covenant. And if we are in Christ, the Word of God tells us that we are ministers of the new covenant that we are the ambassadors of the new covenant, that we are called to be the vehicle for which God works to communicate His love, His promise, and His work, that people would come to Him. And so, you know, I, I wonder and I ask, we, we just a few months ago did this whole sermon series on giving the gospel. Overco- I think the tagline was overcoming the obstacles that keep us silent. And so consider this to be your three-month checkup. Has your heart been stirred? Has your life been changed? Have you embraced this role as Moses did as a minister of the covenant? Have you gone out of your way to talk to your hairdresser? They won't stop talking. Have you gone out of your way to talk to them about who Jesus is? Have you invited your neighbors over for dinner just as an opportunity? Have you maybe hung out with someone who wasn't a Christian? There's a good start. Have, have you begun praying agonizingly for your family, friends, and neighbors who don't know the Lord? Have you been spurred on? You know, some of us, we have a hard time sharing the gospel. And I've got a, a really quick tip. You don't have to memorize any scripture. You don't have to go to a seminar. You don't have to, you know, read a book. Really quick tip if you're having a hard time figuring out how to witness for Christ. Go home, get online. It's probably on YouTube. You can probably Google it. Look up Larry King. Look up any of the interviews Larry King has done with anyone in the Graham family. It could be Billy. It could be Franklin. It could be Ann Graham. doesn't matter. And you'll notice that always they find a way to bring it back to the gospel. And they, make it, and they really like, like make me feel like shamefaced because they make it seem so simple. I mean, Larry could be there and Larry will be like, so Franklin, how was your day? And I've seen this. Franklin will be like, Well, Larry, it has been a great day because it was a day not unlike today that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and the sins of whatever is listening right now if they will believe. And like the questions just keep going on and again and again, it comes back to the Gospel. It comes back to the New Covenant. We make it a lot harder than it really is. We have seen a I think, remarkable text here this morning. We've seen that we worship a God who surprisingly, remarkably, makes promises with human beings. And He fulfills and keeps every promise He makes. We've seen a peculiar patience and a grace that He gives us in giving us time, in giving us reason to turn to Him. But we don't have forever. Today is the day of salvation. 
We've seen that eventually if we turn to Him, we can be saved from judgment. And that we turn and we see that like Moses, the great man of faith, we are called to be ministers of this new covenant that has delivered us as surely as it delivered them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You that You are a God who is mighty to save. We praise You, God, for the unending wonder of Your love and the mystery.